0: Guys, as we continue our study through the Ten Commandments... We've got for the first time um, here in the sermon our fourth and fifth graders that have joined us. Fourth and fifth graders, welcome uh, here this morning. If you're here, I'm so glad you're here. Um, again, we have been shifting around with all the kids that have been up there, adding a new room for our younger kids, and fourth and fifth graders are now in here throughout the duration of the service. So if you're here and you're in fourth and fifth grade, I'm so glad that you're here. Um, and again, as we start our new ministry on October 12th, midweek for fourth and fifth graders, I uh, hope to be able to see you there. Carlos Fojo is going to be uh, leading that up, teaching every week, and Excited for what the Lord's going to do in relationships there as well. So, starting October 12th, I hope to see you there. But glad that you're here uh, and you are here for a, a very practical sermon. Again, all, I felt like, at least for me, All of these second half of the Ten Commandments, the second table of the law, commandments uh, five through ten, have just been not only practical, but just so convicting for me personally. Um, If not for the grace of Jesus, I don't know how you read and study the Ten Commandments. Goodness gracious. Um, As you begin, it's just, this has been the case for me every week, and I don't know if it's been your experience as well. You read the command and you go, okay, I'm in pretty good shape. And then you begin to meditate on the command and you go, oh wow, no, I'm in terrible shape. And then you think about it even more, and you're like, well, I am worthless. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And um, that's where we get to by the end of it. And it's no different this week. So here we go. Um, <laughs> the ninth commandment. Do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Uh, we all know that lying is wrong. Again, this is one of those things ethically, like, everybody agrees on. Christian, non-Christian, we just to say, yeah, this is This is wrong. But while we know it's wrong, it is also something that we do all the time. We're so used to massaging and reshaping the truth until it sounds just how we like it. Or spreading speculations about others, or just flat-out dishonesty. You know, we do it, if, if not every week, we do it every day. It can be easy for us maybe to see this ninth commandment perhaps as a nice suggestion rather than a holy command. These other things, don't murder, don't commit adultery, very serious, let's not do that. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor, Uh, yeah, we'll try, but it's not that big of a deal. It's one of those sins that feels like it's more acceptable in the church. Lying, deceit, gossip, slander, we all do it. It's an acceptable sin. Jerry Bridges, again, quoted him last week. Uh, One of my favorite authors has a whole book called Respectable Sins. It's just so helpful in the way in which we have seen sins that God hates but made them more respectable in the church. I think this falls into one of those categories. Uh, A columnist for Time Magazine once wrote, The injunction against bearing false witness that was branded in stone and brought down by Moses from the mountaintop has always provoked ambivalent and conflicting emotions. On one hand, nearly everyone condemns lying. But on the other hand, nearly everyone does it every day. How many of the Ten Commandments can be broken so easily, and with so little risk of detection, simply over a telephone? Bearing false witness, giving false testimony against your neighbor. What does this mean? So as we've kind of done throughout our study through the Ten Commandments, I want us to look at the command itself and see what God is prohibiting in this command. He's prohibiting something. Do not do this. There's something specific that's prohibited, but there's also categorically other things as well. We'll explore that. Um, and then I want us to see what this commandment promotes. What is this commandment holding up and telling us to aim towards? This is the way that all the commandments work. There's a prohibition and a promotion and everything. And so what we'll see today is just, again, two points. And that's how we'll look at it, the prohibition and the promotion. First, we'll see that we should be rejecting lies. We should be rejecting lies. That is the prohibition, rejecting lies. But secondly, the promotion is we should be rejoicing in the truth. Rejecting lies, rejoicing in the truth. Those are our two points as we see what this commandment prohibits and what it promotes. The first, what does this commandment prohibit? I want us to look really carefully at the words, because if we're not careful, we may just think this just means do not lie. That's certainly the gist of it, but that's not what the commandment is saying. I want us to see first what the commandment is saying, and then we'll see what all it touches after that. Uh, Look again at verse 16, chapter 20 of Exodus. Do not give false testimony, or your your translations may say, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. There's a very specific moment that the commandment's talking about. You may hear it, you you hear about witness and testimony. This is in the context of a courtroom. This is the context of justice and judges in this ancient world. And why is this such a big deal? Why is this one of the 10 Commandments? Well, if you see and think about it, you go back to the ancient world and you think about the way in which courtrooms, the way in which justice was divvied out, they didn't have forensic evidence. They didn't have videotapes to go back and watch. There was no CSI Jerusalem. (laughs) The way in which the majority of cases were solved was through witness testimonies. And so it was just so critical on what these people would say. And you could see how easy it would be then to abuse that system and this was so much the case uh, in the uh, witch hunts throughout uh, colonial America. People would just lay false witness against a person and there was nothing that could be done proven otherwise. And, and there's no exaggeration to say that in this conversation, life and death are on the line. And false witness, false testimony against an individual would lead to the condemnation of an innocent person. Uh, this is very particular. And God, in His wisdom, and in his prudence was so kind in uh, making sure to try to safeguard against this in Israel in particular. Do you can imagine, again, in the ancient world, it's just one person's word against another. But you look at God's law in Deuteronomy, Leviticus, and God, again, put safeguard even in this in Israel. How? Well, Deuteronomy 19.15, God says, one witness cannot establish any iniquity or sin against a person. Whatever that person has done, a fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So God's bringing in, there's got to be two or three witnesses that then see this. The second way God has safeguarded it in Deuteronomy 17, 7, that the witness's hands are to be the first in putting him to death. And then after that, the hands of all the people. So if a witness has brought a testimony that leads to the condemnation of that person, the witness has to pick up the stone and be the first to put that person to death. It's one thing to say something. It's another thing to throw a stone. The third way, again, God has protected against this in his law is Deuteronomy 19 verses 18 and 19. So the judges are to make a careful investigation. And if the witness turns out to be a liar and has falsely accused his brother, you must do to the witness as he intended to do to his brother. And so there's a weight and a serious, God cares about justice. And even in this ancient world, that could so easily be abused. God put these kind of safeguards in place. But that's why this commandment was so serious, life and death. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Do not lie about him. It would lead to his death. Now, that's the specific commandment. That's what's meant here by false testimony or false witness. But as we've seen with all the other commands, this commandment is categorical in nature. So, it's not just the one act. It's everything leading up to that act. It's all the other sins of that kind, the lesser sins of that kind, are also prohibited. That's why Jesus can say, the commandment says, you've heard it says, do not murder. But I say, anyone who has anger in his heart because his brother or sister has violated that command. It's a lesser sin of that kind that leads to the other. It's the same way here. There are all sorts of sin in this category of deception and deceit and lying that are included underneath this command, not simply this testimony, or not simply this setting of being in the courtroom and giving false testimony. And so to think that this commandment is, do not lie, there's again, that's the gist of it. Uh, but that's kind of the extension of what we see a specific command to be. I think the Heidelberg Catechism that Peter read earlier today. That question and answer, I think, gets to the heart of it so beautifully. And if you ha- you've noticed, we've been doing on and off some of these Heidelberg Catechisms questions through the Ten Commandments. Just this, after church today, at some point in the afternoon, go through and read the question and answers through the commandments in the Heidelberg Catechism. The whole catechism is helpful and beautiful. It's not, uh, catechisms are not inspired. They're not, they don't have any authority. They're only helpful in as much as they synthesize and teach the truth, the truth of Scripture the Heidelberg Catechism does it so beautifully. And especially with the commandments, they're so helpful. And so go through and read the question and answers through the commandments. I want to go back and listen again to this question in the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer number 112. What is the aim of the ninth commandment? Here's the aim, that I never give false testimony against anyone. And there's the commandment right there specifically. But then it continues to see the sins that are in that category as well that I never twist anyone's words, to not gossip or slander, to not join in condemning anyone rashly or without a hearing, but rather in court and in everywhere else, I should avoid lying and deceit of every kind because these are the very devices the devil uses and they would call down on me God's intense wrath. You hear the way in which his commandment then begins to reach into the crevices of all of our hearts. In so many ways. Yes, not giving false witness in a courtroom. Making sure that there is truth and honesty that's taken there. If you're ever called to be a witness in the court, that you swear to give the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That, that is a biblical idea. And that not only that, though, but this then extends... And this underlying principle of deception extends into so many other ways. So what I want to do is just walk through, I think, those few phrases there in the Heidelberg Catechism to see the way in which this commandment continues into our lives, not just in bearing false witness in the courtroom, but also by twisting another's words through gossip and slander and through rash condemnation. These are the other ways in which this uh, commandment extends to our lives today and prohibits actions and deceit. First, I want to see the way in which it uh, prohibits twisting one another's words, that we are around other people, maybe we're on social media, maybe in an argument or in a conflict and something is said and we take it and twist it just a little bit for it to no longer mean what was said to mean. Maybe you're in an argument with somebody and as you are then uh, trying to recount their position against you, you say it in a way they would never agree with you. You twist their words and their position in a way that they would never, uh, never agree with. Uh, We don't even have to try hard to do this. We just do this really naturally. To hear things and say them in a way that makes the best, either the most sense to us or makes us look the best and make them look the worst. We're excellent at this. If you're married, you know this especially to be true. In the middle of an argument, you will hear something, and as you're hearing it, your experience of that and what is being said and communicated to you comes through a particular lens that is, if you were to say it back to your spouse, in absolutely no way what they would say, what they're trying to say. But you go, oh, no, no, this is what you said, this is what felt, and so this is what happened. They go, well, no, it's not what I said. Well, this is what I felt, but well, it's not what I said. I don't know if you've ever been in conversations like that. Maybe I'm alone. We twist one another's words, and rather than trying to find the truth, we begin to twist it so that we come out on top. I was so good at this, retelling a story, especially in conflict. Again, if you get into a conflict with somebody at work or a friend or a family member, you go then and retell that story. Isn't it interesting how we never do anything wrong and the other person is just the worst? Just without even trying. How honest are we with what is going on as we twist other people's words? Again, if you're ever in in a disagreement with somebody, maybe even say you're in a religious conversation with somebody and they're arguing over maybe the claims of Jesus or the ethics of some issue, As you begin to try to engage with them, I love, uh, uh, Tim Keller is a pastor in New York, and he put it this way. This has been so helpful to me. As you're engaging in these conversations, you should try to understand their position and articulate it in a way that when they hear you say it, they go, yeah, that's what I believe. So not a straw man argument in which we kind of build this thing that they don't really say that's easy to knock down. Again, we're really good at that. Twisting another position or word but claiming their position in a way that they would hear it and go, oh yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. And then we engage with that. Engage with truth. Don't twist one another's words. And we, Again, we see this all the time in social media. Goodness gracious. It's like social media is a false witness generator. Taking what people say, twisting it in certain ways, quoting parts of the truth, not quite all of the truth, telling a story that isn't entirely true. I I see this on Twitter all the time. Somebody will say something about someone else, gets thousands of retweets. Then turns out that thing wasn't entirely true, so underneath it, they correct it and go, hey, actually, I was wrong, here's what's true. That gets like four retweets. People don't like the truth. It's not as juicy, it's not as entertaining. We like the story, we like the conflict, we like what's wrong, We we want that to spread. So friends, just be careful on social media that you're not one spreading things that are not true. That you're not twisting other people's words. Or even that as you see or read things on Facebook or social media, Twitter, whatever else it might be, take, look, here's just a really practical thing, take three minutes and Google it to see if it's true or not. It doesn't take long. But we're so quick to share something because maybe it aligns with something that we believe, we don't bother to see if it's true or not. And we will perpetuate and twist other people's words or bear false witness. Be lovers of the truth, not spreaders of what is false. And don't twist other people's words. And this command not only extends to twisting other people's words and, and positions, but it also extends into gossip and slander. And I want to I park here for just a minute. I know you probably heard that. We're like, hopefully we won't spend much time on that. We're going to spend a little bit of time on that. We need to. Because I think gossip and slander in particular is something in which we would all go, oh yeah, we shouldn't do it. What exactly is it? I think I do it, so I don't really want to talk about it. With gossip and slander, we need to understand that it's this sense of giving false testimony against your neighbor, against your friend, against your family member, against your coworker. And the violation or the prohibition of this commandment extends into speaking both gossip and slander what is gossip? I just define it. There's a number of ways you can define it. I would just define it this way. Gossip is when you say something that you would never say to a person's face. It's something you would never say when they were around. Uh, you, you'd say it to other people behind their backs, but if they were there, all of a sudden, you wouldn't say it. And somebody has said before that then flattery on the flip side of that is something that you would say to somebody's face that you would never say behind their back. So you tell them all these wonderful things about themselves, but you'd never say that to other people. You don't really believe that. You flatter them in front of them. A gossip is what you would say behind their back, but never to their face. And this could be speculation. Gossip can be speculation, which you hear something that might be true, and so you go and you spread it to others. It's not substantiated. There's no way to substantiate it, but you've heard it. It might be true. And again, there's just something about it that people love to hear, and so you go and you share it with others. It may be outright lies. Maybe you know it's not true, but again, you love to be able to make, there's a way, and one of the quickest ways to make friends is to find a mutual enemy. If you can find someone that you don't like, maybe you know something isn't true, but you go to this person, begin to talk about them, and now all of a sudden you have this newfound friendship. And so maybe you know it's a lie and you spread it. So it's either speculation or lies that can't be substantiated, that can't be proven, you're going, hey, this, this person, here's what, they were, here's what they did to me. They were thinking this. They were feeling this. And this is what they did whenever they said this. And as you're talking to somebody in that way, and if somebody were to just ask you and go, well, how do you know that they were feeling it? Did they say that? You go, well, no. But you see, they put a period right here instead of an exclamation point, And so I know exactly what they were thinking. Well, <laughs> oh, friends, we don't know what people are thinking or feeling. And to not only then begin to assume motive for people, To begin to speculate as far as what people are doing and why they're doing it. We then have an emotional reaction to that. There's anger or frustration in our heart over something we speculate someone else may or may not be doing. Then not only do we feel that way towards that person, which may or may not be true, we then spread that to others in a way that can't be substantiated and begins to bring others then against that person. Friends, that is what this commandment is also reaching into, to gossip and to slander. But the other category that gossip falls into is not simply either speculation or falsehood. Gossip also extends into things that are true that don't need to be passed on to another person. And so maybe you go, well, hey, I just heard that so-and-so did this. I know that they did this. I know that this happened. I'm just telling lots of people because I'm just spreading the truth. I'm not telling a lie. I'm saying true things. But friends, but does that need to be spread? And how would that person feel again if they were there and you were saying this thing about them? A gossip also extends to true things that don't need to be said to a particular conversation. Proverbs eighteen eight puts it this way: A gossip's words are like choice food. ESV translates that as delicious morsels. I like that a little bit more. A gossip's words are like delicious, delicious morsels that goes down to one's innermost being. We all love to hear it. It's human nature. But I want to also highlight something there that's really important. I think mean, when we think about gossip, we think about the words that we're saying. It's a type of speech. Gossip. We're not supposed to gossip. But the way the Bible normally talks about it is not a kind of speech, but it's a kind of person. Do you hear that in Proverbs eighteen eight? A gossip's words. It's talking about the individual. It's a kind of person or a posture of our heart that loves to spread and share this gossip. It's not just a one-time action. There's something in our hearts that's coming out as we're wanting to spread these things about other people. We're wanting to get people's responses or to bring them in or to tear other people down. We want it to spread. And this is exactly what Jesus teaches in Matthew 12, 34. He said, the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. And so gossip comes from our heart. There's something in our heart that's there that's spreading this around. And perhaps, there's no telling what it is, gossip is complicated and we're complicated creatures, but perhaps what's there in our heart is a desire for power, knowing that information is power and you like having the dirt on everyone else. You've got an upper hand on the people around you, and as you hear what all is going on, it it raises your social standing and improves your social standing. Maybe in your heart is jealousy, seeing other people get what you think you deserve, a better job or a higher salary, more obedient children, maybe an easier life in the retirement season. And so you grumble against them. You spread things about them, how they got that or what they're doing, or maybe even hoping that those things fall apart to help make yourself feel better as you're jealous about what they have. Maybe it's revenge in your heart, feeling either a real or um, invented wrong that was done against you. You want to take matters into your own hands. And so rather than kind of general gossip, your gossip is focused and fixed on this one individual, trying to tear them down because of what they have done to you. And maybe it's just wanting to fit in with others and not wanting to be left out. You're sitting around a water cooler. I don't know if there's still water coolers in offices or not, but I feel like that's the, that's the metaphor. So there it is. You're sitting around the water cooler and people are chatting. And what is naturally going to be in those conversations? It's going to be conversations about a boss, another employee, how so-and-so is doing this. And there's going to be this inclination maybe in your heart to want to just fit in. If you don't fit in, then you know tomorrow you're probably going to be the topic of conversation around the water cooler. And so there's a fear of man rather than a fear of the Lord. And you begin to talk about other people and chime in with the juicy details that you know to be able to jump in and fit in. Whatever it might be, there's something in our hearts that comes out in those forms of gossip or slander, to intentionally slander or to say untrue things about people. It gets unfortunately so common. I think we've forgotten just how much God hates it. And so what can we do? What do we do as Christians and as we engage in conversations like this? How do we identify gossip? How do we stop the spread of gossip? Three practical questions I would say to ask yourself is, one, is what I'm about to say true? Is what I'm about to say true? If it is not, don't say it. If it is, pass on to the second question. Second question, if so, does it really need to be said to this person in this conversation? The next in category is going, okay, this is a true thing that I want to say, but does it need to be said here? Or am I just wanting to get a rise out of them? Am I seeking counsel or wisdom about how to handle a situation? Or am I just, quote unquote, trying to vent, which is a euphemism for sin often that we have for gossip? There's a real need for venting, but I worry that we've expanded that word to include gossip and slander. Does it really need to be said to this person in this conversation? And the third question to ask, would I put it this way if the person I'm talking about were right here next to me? Would I say the same thing if the person I'm talking about were right here next to me? Videos those things are no, then don't say it. Reframe the way in which you would say it. I love our church covenant has this sentence in there, which I think is so helpful. It says that we are then together walking in unity, we will reject all opportunities to speak or to hear gossip or slander. And it's just an incredible story in our church in which there was a conflict between two people, and one person came to me and said, Caleb, I'm really frustrated because there was this wrong that I felt like was done. I wanted to say things, but I remembered what I signed in the church covenant, to not speak or to hear gossip or slander. And so I want to resolve this, but I want to resolve it the right way. And so I sat down with them and the other person, and they expressed their hurt. The other person heard it, apologized, and there was reconciliation, and the the matter stopped there, because it's so easy for us to feel hurt or wounded by somebody, and it's all the people that are around us. It helps us feel better. It helps us be able to, um, I guess, somehow feel like we're self medicating. But it, it's not what we see here. Uh, what God has prescribed to deal in situations and conflict. And the prohibition here extends not only to speaking gossip, but you heard it both in the um, catechism and there in our covenant. It's not just speaking slander, it's also listening to slander and gossip. That often that sin of listening to it is just as serious as speaking it. There's an old rabbinic uh, proverb that says, gossip and slander kill three people, the one who speaks it, the one who listens to it, and the one about whom it is spoken. As we hear it, we're perpetuating the spread of it. And so listen, it's awkward. If you begin to hear a conversation which you know this is certainly gossip, then we as Christians are called then to put an end to that. And so that's odd. I understand. It's an awkward situation socially. And so however you might need to handle it, but just something like if you're in that conversation, just go, hey, I don't know if we should be having this conversation. I don't mean to be critical. I know it's weird, but like I'm just not sure. And put an end to it. To not just speak it, but also in listening to it. And I want to take just a moment to to speak to people who maybe have been hurt or wounded by gossip or slander. Maybe you're here and your career, your life, your relationships have been ruined because of what other people have said about you. This is certainly today, true today in the age of trial by Twitter, it feels like, where people's careers, names, and reputations are often drugged through the mud uh, before anything is brought out for any kind of evidence. And things are ruined. And maybe that's you. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you've lost relationships because of what other people have said. You're trying to figure out how to be able to deal with that. How do you process that? Now listen, there's, it's complicated and, and, and help counseling is certainly helpful. But I want to put forward uh, one sense today which is just so, I think so beautiful about the nature of God. That in that moment, when you've been hurt or wounded by something that someone has said about you that isn't true, just think and realize for a moment that the God that you serve Understands exactly what that feels like. As you go to him and you bring that care, you bring that hurt, and you go, Lord, I I feel misunderstood. I feel like people are casting blame or judgment on me. It's not true. And these lies about me are have led to the loss of something in my life. As you bring that to the Lord, Jesus Christ is able to look right into your eyes and go, I know exactly how you feel. One of my favorite things about Jesus is that he's a sympathetic high priest. That he's been tempted like us in every way but without sin. That he's walked through the brokenness and the pain of this world. That he was slandered and lied about that led to his condemnation and death. That he was totally misunderstood and it led to his crucifixion. And as you come to your God, you come to a God that understands that kind of pain. He knows what that's like. He's not above it. He entered into it. Friends, you won't find a God like that in any other religion. Jesus is so unique in that way as he is sympathetic to that and understands that pain and knows what that feels like. And so the truth then in coming to Jesus, you come to him and you can know no matter how you've been misunderstood in the world by your friends or in your job, as you come to your Savior, you are never misunderstood by Jesus Christ. You are never blamed for something you did not do. You are fully seen and fully known. And there is a tenderness and a care and a comfort that we find in our great high priest. So this is the prohibition we see then to this extension to gossip and to slander. It goes on even then to the final kind of category in that Heidelberg Catechism, to rash condemnation, to not jumping or joining and condemning anyone rashly or without a hearing. Again, whether it's on social media, whether it's in our life, we hear a story, we automatically jump to a conclusion, and we believe that to be true. Proverbs tell this, when someone comes to give their case, that sounds true until the other person comes and talks. We need to understand that the idea that you're innocent until proven guilty is a biblical idea. And we need to be able to understand and wait and let things come out to be and not rush to rash condemnation. Because listen, in each of these categories, we are prone to want to do this. We are prone to deception. There's something in us innately that's drawn to it. Again, like like lush morsels. We love the flavor of it. And we get that naturally. Jesus put it this way in John 8, 44. He's confronting some of the Jews who were there in a conversation. And he says, you are of your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. The origin of deception began there in the garden with the father of lies. That's how it all began. This whisper into Eve's ear, did God really say? Twisting God's words, getting Adam and Eve to believe the lie about God and rebel against him. And lies then spring forward from him. And in our own flesh, apart from Christ, we fall right in that same category as our hearts are deceitful and wicked beyond all things. We can't understand it. We get that naturally. We all are prone to this. And this commandment, the prohibition, is to reject lies. That's the prohibition. So what then is the promotion? What is this commandment holding up? Prohibition is to reject lies. The promotion is to rejoice in the truth. To rejoice in the truth. That God's people are called to rejoice in the truth and to be people of the truth because we worship a truth-telling God. If Satan is the origin, the father of lies, God is the foundation and the essence of truth. Romans 3, 4 says, Let God be true, even though everyone is a liar. John 1:14 says, that Jesus is full of grace and truth. Isaiah 53 9 says, There was no deceit in Jesus' mouth. John 14 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the truth. And even God's Spirit, in 1 John 4 6, He is known as the Spirit of truth. That God is the essence of what is true, and we can always take Him for what, is, what His word says, for what He speaks. He's never known falsehood. He's never known deceit. He's never known manipulation. You never have to raise your eyebrows at what God says, wondering, "Uh, is this really true? He is truth. In a very real way, truth flows out of him. It's how we know what is true and what is false, because he is true. And we can take him at his word, because John 17, 17 said that his word is truth. And so we then are called to rejoice in the truth because we worship a truth-telling God. And telling the truth is more than simply just saying true things. It's not just going around saying facts. Again, if we see the root of deception is hatred and a desire to tear down your neighbor. That's what the root of deception is. Something against your neighbor and a desire to see him torn down. The root of truth then is love and a desire to build up your neighbor. This is the opposite extreme. Not simply telling facts, but a desire for love and a desire to build up your neighbor. How would I say that? How would I say that truth is founded in love? There's a number of ways. I want to go specifically to 1 Corinthians 13, 6. If you've been to any wedding in the last year, you've probably heard this chapter read. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is all these things. So sentimental. But when we stop and really think about the application of what love is in our life, it is It is not a sentimental verse. (laughs) Love is patient. You know what that means? That means whenever your kids have been screaming for four hours, love is patient. Love is kind. Your meal has come out for the third time with a mistake. How do you treat the waitress? Love is kind. Love is gentle. Again, you're driving down the interstate on I-4, the bane of creation. Somebody cuts in front of you and there's something that rises up in you. Are you gentle in that moment? Because the application of love is incredibly difficult. It's not, we've got to stop sentimentalizing love. It is real, it is a promise, and it is self-sacrificing. It is beautiful, but it is not just simply merely sentimental. Verse Corinthians thirteen six says then specifically that love finds no joy in unrighteousness. But here's what love does. I want you to listen to this. Love rejoices in the truth. That's what love does. When you love your neighbor, you rejoice in truth. You don't then get a quick high on falsehood or gossip or slander. You rejoice in what is true. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's what love does. And so truth The opposite then of this commandment of lying and deception. Again, I would say the root of deception is hatred and desire to tear down your neighbor. The opposite of this and what is promoted, then the root of truth is not just a desire for justice or fact. The root of truth is love and a desire to build up your neighbor. This is why when Jesus sums up the commands five through 10, how does he sum it up? Love, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the summary of this command. It fits into that. Love is the foundation of it. That love rejoices in the truth. That's the posture and the instinct that a follower of Jesus should have. Not a desire to see false things spread or to gossip, to go around, but for love, for truth to be told and to rejoice then in that truth. That is what this extends to. That's what telling the truth looks like. Telling the truth means that we rejoice then in the truth. It may not be as quote-unquote juicy as whatever thing we might want to see or spread around or whatever the headline might be. But friends, we are people of the truth because we worship a truth-telling God. And telling the truth means we rejoice in that truth. But you notice also in 1 Corinthians thirteen six that telling the truth also means thinking, saying, and believing the best about other people. So rather than kind of treating people with a raised eyebrow assuming the worst or always coming with kind of a posture of suspicion. Why are they saying this? I bet they're, I bet they're thinking this. I bet this is why he said this. I bet this is why she wrote this. Uh, she, again, she responded with all caps here and well, I, know, I know exactly what she's trying to say. She's yelling at me in her text messages. I can feel it. Rather than assuming the worst or coming with suspicion, telling the truth means thinking, saying, and believing the best about others. Do you hear that in 1 Corinthians 13, 6? Love believes all things. Believes the best. Innocent until proven guilty. We believe the best in people. We assume the best. We don't speculate about a motive that we may or may not be able to know. We believe the best thing in it. Instead of being suspicious about their motives, we should put the best possible spin on what was said or done. And telling the truth also means that we should do what we can to guard our neighbor's good name. You know, we talked about this a little bit with slander. But as you hear it, part of what telling the truth means is you stop with the spread of what is false. And you try to guard and protect your neighbor's good name. Do you hear that at the end of the catechism? I thought it was just so well put, interestingly put. The opposite, the aim of the ninth commandment, and the opposite of all the prohibition is that we should love the truth, speak it candidly, and openly acknowledge it. And I should do what I can to guard and advance my neighbor's good name. Rather than bearing false witness against our neighbor, we should try to protect our neighbor's good name and reputation, those that are around us, and stopping what is false, but not simply guarding against our neighbor's good name. This next word was to me the most interesting, that we should advance our neighbor's good name. We should advance our neighbor's good name. We shouldn't just stop kind of an attack against it. We should take what we see in our friends, family, neighbors, coworkers in their life, and we should advance it. We should gossip about people in good ways, advancing what we see in their life to other people, rather either to them or to others. How often do we see something in someone's life? We see some evidence of God's grace in someone's life. We see some way that someone cares or something that they do. And internally, we go, oh, that's so nice. And then we just move on with our life. But friends, today, just really practically, if you see that today, go to that person and say something. And then go to other people and say it to them as well. And go, hey, I saw so-and-so doing this. I just love, I love, I love that kind of heart that they have as they serve in this way. And that's just so awesome? And they go on with your day and you're like, oh, that's weird, we don't talk like that. Well, maybe we should. Maybe that should be our posture rather than talking about others and trying to tear them down, is looking to build others up to honor them. I love this verse in Romans 12.10. I think it's just so good for our culture and for our time today. Romans 12.10, here's what Paul says to the church in Rome. Outdo one another in showing honor. It's like it's a competition. Like we've got a scoreboard right back there. We can start uh, today in trying to compete in showing honor against one another. Well, will Keep score. It'll be a competition that we as a church begin to try to top one another as we're trying to honor each other and the ways that we see God's grace working in one another's life. I hear a lot of people today talking about wanting to be countercultural, and usually it's kind of in the context of how evil the world is and the need to take a stand for Christ, Uh, Friends, certainly some of that is true, but let me just say, if you want to be a culture warrior and really stand out from the world, quit gossiping and tearing down people behind their backs and instead take the lead in showing honor about people. That looks nothing like the world. And that is totally countercultural. Friends, do you talk more about the things that you think are wrong with others? Or do you talk more about the things that you think are honorable about others? What's the majority of your speech like? so we've heard the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's garbage. (laughs) That is just not true. Here's the way the Bible talks about words and the power of the tongue. James 3, 5 through 6 says, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell itself. Friends, our words have power to tear down, but also power to build up. You heard as Holly read earlier in Ephesians 5, this was Paul's instruction to the church in Ephesus to use their words in that way. That no foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need. That's the kind of language that should come from our mouth. Letting all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you. That kind of speech, be removed along with all malice, and instead to be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another. This is the kind of language that we should have, the flavor of our words to one another. And so let's use our words to build up an honor as we rejoice in the truth, that that would mark what this congregation looks like. Because, friends, that's what love does. That's what it means to love your neighbor. That we do that instead of deception or false witness as we seek to tear down as we see that speaking lies results in condemnation of an innocent person, and that we wouldn't bear false witness against our neighbor. And so again, we get to the end of a week like this and we see the way, here's another command in which we fall short almost daily. As we close, I wanna want uh, think about a scenario I've seen often at Disney World. I, I love Disney World, it's, a magical, it's the most magical place on earth full of surprise and delight everywhere you go. I cannot figure out how they're able to get every single cast member, no matter what they're doing, to be a part of the magic, can't figure it out. But somehow everyone believes in it and they make every situation magical. Somehow it happens. But there's a scenario I see often at Disney, because I don't know if you know this or not, but Disney's crowded, (laughs) and in those crowds, often children get separated from their parents. And in those moments, the kids then just begin to cry. You see the terror on their face. They're in the midst of all these people. I I see grown adults in that scenario sometimes in that crowd. Much less a child that doesn't know where their parent is. They're lost. And you see, in those moments, you see cast members, they know exactly what they do. They rush in, they grab the child by the hand, and they know exactly the steps they do to lead their child back to their father and mother. It's just incredible to watch, tenderness care as they lead them then back to their father and mother. But there's something that has to happen in order for that cast member to step in and take their hand and lead them back to their parents. And what has to happen is that child has to both know that they're lost and feel the gravity of the total despair that they are in the middle of a sea of people with no hope to get back to their parents. And they begin to wail. When that happened, then the cast member grabs them by the hand and leads them. If they just walked around like everything was fine, nobody would do anything. But it's the acknowledgement and the awareness that they are lost and without hope that enacts then this this, uh, cast member to step in, grab their hand, and lead them back to their parents. And I wanna say, as we look at the law, week in and week out, we get to the end of it, and there's a bit of it maybe where you go, I feel like I am in just total despair and without hope. How in the world can I keep this commandment again? I just, it's one after the other, Caleb, just every single week, I feel like I've fallen so short, I feel so lost, and I feel like I can't do this, and let me just say, if that's your feeling, that is a good feeling, just don't stop there, if you stop there, it leads then to despair, no hope, condemnation, but if you continue, that's the first half of the gospel. And if you continue then in the story of the gospel, what the law will do to you in those moments as you read it and go, I can't do this. I feel lost. I feel like I'm without hope. I'm in total despair. And you begin to sense that, acknowledge it, and you're aware of it, and you cry out. The law will take you by the hand and lead you to your Savior. That's part of its purpose, is to help you see the way in which you can't keep it, to guard you and to lead you to Jesus. And one of the things that we need to make sure we do, some people may go, okay, we need to stop talking about the law because I feel so bad. We need to like encourage each other. Say how awesome we are. You're just telling me all the ways I can't keep God's law. But friends, here's why it's important that we understand the sin in our own lives. Because if you do not think you are that much of a sinner, then you will not think that you will need that much of a savior. And whenever we see the weight of our sin and the way in which we have fallen so short of God's glory and His standard and His holiness, and we are without hope and in total despair, but then we see Him in His grace reach down, grab us by the hand, and lead us back to Himself, restoring us back to our Father, reconciling us to the God whom we blaspheme, who we had rejected, who we rebelled against, then we stand in total amazement of His grace going, why would you save me, a sinner? And friends, that's the prayer that God honors. That's the heart that God is looking for. Because it leads us, the, the more we realize that we have sinned against God, The holier that we see that God is. You see there's a gap gap that grows between us. And do you know what stands in the middle of that gap? The cross of Jesus Christ. The greater that gap is, the greater the cross will be. The better we think we are, the smaller that we think God is, the smaller that cross becomes. And so friends, as we look through these laws, yes, we feel the weight of how we've broken them. But friends, that leads us then to our need of a Savior. And just the great grace in which Jesus has shown us. That while our sins may be great, while our sins may be many, here's what you need to know. His mercy is more. Let's pray.